Today's reading is Psalm 139, 1 through 12. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I stay, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated. Good to be with you this morning. My name is uh, Steve Porter. Thank you, Diana, for that reading. So, have you ever noticed that uh, a, a well-chosen frame can really help a picture out? If you put a nice frame around a picture, you'll you'll notice things perhaps about that picture that you wouldn't otherwise notice. Uh, you might experience that painting or that portrait in a different way because of the frame. Um, I found some pictures to illustrate this. I, I found this picture uh, <laughs> online. It's amazing, this thing called the World Wide Web. It just has so many things on it. And uh, it didn't have a frame on it, so I, I thought I'd add one. And. <laughs> Turns out our own Daniel Long looks pretty good framed in graffiti. Um, there was another picture that I found, and uh, this one didn't have a frame either, Beth. You should have made sure to have a frame on it. So I found this frame. Yes. Yeah. So, it's a euro. You look good on a euro. Not everyone would look good on a euro. I could go on. Uh, I actually made another one of Will Rogan. Will, I framed you. I put you in a snow globe. And, and there was just something right about you being in a snow globe. And I, so, but I, I didn't, I didn't, you can ask me for it later if you want to see that. But more seriously, um, a frame can help us experience the world differently. We talk about a, a frame of reference or a frame of mind or a framework that we bring to something. The Christian life is, is really a frame of mind. It's a frame of reference. We've, we've entered into a new vision of reality through the person of Jesus. That, that framework changes how we experience ourselves. It changes what we notice about others, what we notice about our world, how we experience our world. Uh, we're going through a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed and other creeds are, are kind of a framework. They're a frame of what we believe we, we want to believe the right things about reality. Uh, it's not because we, we score points if we believe the right things 
uh, or that God likes us better if we believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's that the world is different when there are things like virgin births. We believe in a different kind of world when someone has come from the dead. This, this frame of reference that we bring to reality changes how we experience and view our lives. I've been thinking about frames uh, quite a bit recently, uh, partly because I've been reading a book by this gentleman. His name's Charles Taylor. He's a philosopher from Canada, Christian man. And he wrote a book a while back called A Secular Age. A Secular Age. And the question that, that Taylor's puzzling about in this book is this. Why was it so easy to believe in God, to be a Christian in the 1500s, at least in the Western world? Why was it so easy to believe in God in the 1500s? And why is it much more difficult now in the 2000s? What's changed over the last 500 years such that Christianity is contested? It's no longer easy to find our way into a Christian view of the world, and our culture uh, attests to that. In our modern world, with its productivity and efficiency and progress, we tend to be focused in on the next thing that we can achieve. We're often not thinking about a transcendent God in a transcendent realm, but we're thinking about the here and now. This is what Taylor calls the imminent frame. Taylor says, in our modern world, we have an imminent frame. We tend to approach our days and our lives with kind of a tunnel vision. The transcendence of God, of Christianity, has been blocked out. We live this buffered life focused in on what we can attain, what we can achieve, what we can do. And God, if you want to help out, feel free. Taylor puts it like this. It's the modern tendency to view our lives as complete and full without appeal to God, transcendence, or the supernatural. It's not so much that God doesn't exist. It's that we don't need him. He's irrelevant. Uh, we're not really sure what he's doing anyway, so we better just do the best we can with what we've got with the time we have. That's the imminent frame. What's interesting about Taylor is he says this imminent frame has not only affected the non-Christian, but it's affected the believer too. That even us Christians in this modern world of efficiency and productivity and urbanization and, and technological innovation, we too live in this kind of imminent frame. For us Christians, we can go a long time sometimes working through our day and working through our week and working through our problems, kind of forgetting about our need for God. Maybe not even sure how he's involved. There's this uh, joke of a man who is late for his wedding. And he's driving to the church. And he gets there and he can't find a parking place. And so he's driving around the block, around the block, trying to find a parking place. He's late for his wedding. And finally he prays. He says, God, please, please, give me a parking place. And right as he prays that, someone pulls out of a parking place in front of him. And he says, never mind, God, I found one. 
See, that's that imminent frame. God, if you're there, could you help me out? Oh, no, don't worry about it. I got it taken care of. And yet, for Christians, we can sometimes live too much within that imminence, but of course, we can also react to that. And sometimes we live too much in the transcendence. We actually repress or deny or, or minimize some of the reality of the here and now in our quest to grab hold of that transcendent God and that transcendent world. And we escape the reality of this life. As uh, has been said around these parts, in Narnia, it was always winter and never Christmas in C.S. Lewis's Narnia. But sometimes in the church today, it can be always Christmas and never winter. That sometimes in our quest to try to deny this imminent frame, we grab hold of transcendence, but we, we deny and we repress and we minimize the difficulties, the challenges of human life. Maybe what we need in this imminent frame in our modern world is an ancient creed. An ancient creed that calls us to think about the world in a different kind of way. Now, I don't know why I signed up to preach on this line of the creed. <laughs> he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, if you have your Bible there under your chair, uh, it's on page, what page is it? Uh, Colossians 3. That is true. It's on page 984. Thank you. And just, just stay there with me for a moment. I want to I come back to that passage there in Colossians 3, verses uh, 1 through 4. But hang on for a moment. The first thing I want to point out about this section of our creed, it's part of, it's part of the, the creed where we've turned to, I believe in Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, who was buried, he descended into hell. One of the things we see in our creed is this is no vision of a transcendent God who's uninvolved in reality. The creed reminds us that the transcendent God has become the imminent one. He's broken into our imminent frame. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. He, he came into our situation. He doesn't stand aloof and distant, but he came in. And not only did he come in and become human, but he went all the way through. He went all the way through the human condition. He died. And while I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the he descended into hell bit of this, I think we do need to really realize that part of what our creed is helping us understand is Jesus really died. He tasted death on our behalf. And it wasn't just that one moment on the cross and then he's, he's all better. No, it was Good Friday and it was Holy Saturday. All the way until Easter morning, Jesus experienced death. He knows what it's like to die. Some say when they're repeating the creed that instead of he descended to hell, he descended to the dead. 
or he descended with the dead, or he descended into death. He really died. The transcendent one became the imminent one, and we killed him. The transcendent one came into our imminent frame, and we said, no, thank you. We wish you were dead. And he took it. He took it. But that wasn't the last word. He rose from the dead. He wouldn't let us do away with him so easily and quickly. He came back. And he keeps coming back. Because he's not only the resurrected Lord, but he's the risen and ascended Lord. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want to focus in on that. Let me just say one more thing about this notion of transcendence and imminence. The Christian faith is not some transcendent otherworldly call that's either impossible to live up to or that can only be achieved through an escape from the realities of our human condition. Rather, this transcendent God with his transcendent vision in his transcendent realm takes on flesh and dwells among us. Emmanuel, God with us. He becomes human and goes all the way through our human condition and comes out the other side. The transcendent one becomes the imminent one. He climbs into our imminent human frame and shows us how to find a transcendent life in his Father's kingdom. He reframes our lives by reframing human existence what it is to be human. He doesn't call us out of our humanity, but he identifies with our humanity. He doesn't condemn humanness in the flesh. He perfects humanness in his own flesh. He doesn't preach a message of impossible transformation. He shows us the inevitability of transformation through himself and by his spirit. And he doesn't leave us alone. He remains with us always by his spirit. The scriptures refer to Jesus as the forerunner of humanity, the firstborn of all creation. He leads the way. And he offers us a frame, a vision for what human life is. God is up to something in this world, and it's both much bigger than us, and yet it centrally involves us. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. We serve a transcendent but present, imminent Lord and Savior. And I think we need to hear that, particularly in this modern world where it's so easy to keep him at a distance. There are several places uh, where Scripture actually calls believers in Jesus to set their minds on the risen, ascended, seated Jesus. Uh, Colossians 3 is one of those. We're going to get there, but one more detour before we get there. Not a detour. Uh, Hebrews 12 is another passage before we get to Colossians 3. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus. Paul says something very similar here in Colossians 3. So now, if you're still there with me, Colossians 3, verse 1. Notice we have the resurrection here, we have death here, and we actually have um, the seating of Christ. For if then you've been raised with Christ Jesus, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died with Christ. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who actually is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Paul says. In that one passage, we see a little bit of this dying with Christ, rising with Christ, and ascending with Christ. And Paul calls the Colossians to set their minds on things above. And the only thing he tells us or tells them that's above is Jesus. Set your mind on heaven? Well, not quite. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Set your mind on Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, what's that about? We probably shouldn't take it literally. It's not that there's some literal throne room and Jesus is kind of off to the right. But if that helps you imagine what we're talking about here, then by all means imagine that. Because I think the picture isn't a bad one. Jesus is seated at the position of all authority and power. In Mark's gospel, Jesus himself calls it the right hand of power. Jesus is seated at the position of all authority. He's he's Lord of lords and King of kings. He's under control. And yet he's seated. He's not pacing back and forth, wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen next. He's in a position of rest, governing this world, paying attention to things. Paul wants the Colossians, he wants us to fix our minds, to set our minds on the reality that no matter what we're going through, no matter what is going on, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is there, and that is the ultimate story of our lives. See, what, what is it like to begin to integrate that vision of our transcendent and yet imminent Lord and Savior who's at a position of authority and a position of rest in our lives and in this world today. Set your mind on things above. Notice as well that it's a command. We're supposed to do something, not just believe it, but we're supposed to seek it, to set our minds on it, to fix our eyes on this Jesus. There's something we need to do here. There's a process to engage in. Again, there's a reframing of our lives. It's not some sort of contemplative vision that's isolated from this world. In fact, um, a New Testament commentator, Craig Keener, in in a paper called Heavenly Mindedness and Earthly Good. You know, there's that phrase, that person was so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a kind of heaven-mindedness, a a mindset on the risen Lord Jesus that 
makes us of incredible earthly good because it sets us free to serve him in a way we wouldn't otherwise be able to serve him in the lives of others. But Keener says this, in context then, Colossians speaks of no abstract contemplation detached from present earthly existence. Rather, the focus on heaven is a focus on Christ, on a person. Not only is he enthroned above, but as that reality of his, uh, not only as he is enthroned above, but as that reality of his lordship impinges on the living of daily life. And so we're supposed to attend to this. We're supposed to make this our frame of mind, to take on the mind of Christ, as Paul puts it, to to have this frame of reference that we live in a world and we're going through our lives and Jesus is with us by his spirit and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. What would our lives be like if we began to attend to that reality more and more? I want to think about that a little bit with you as we close. Um, This quote by W.H. Auden has stuck with me now for many years, but Auden says this, um, choice of attention, to pay attention to this and ignore that, is to the inner life what choice of action is to the outer In both cases, men and women are responsible for their choices and must accept the consequences. As Ortega y Gasset said, tell me to what you pay attention and I'll tell you who you are. Something right about that. What am I paying attention to? And how is what I and you are paying attention to, how is that affecting us emotionally? How's that affecting us relationally? How's it affecting us in in our choices? What would it look like to attend to the risen Lord Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father? Even if we don't even totally know what that means, that might be the first step, right? To say, God, I don't get it. I don't even know if you're really seated. What, What does that mean? Well, guess what? We're already attending. We're attending to that reality. We're struggling with it. I want to talk about three things that it might mean to attend to Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. The first one is this. To seek the things that are above where Christ is means that Jesus is Lord of all. And if Jesus is Lord of all, then we're not. If he's Lord of lords and kings and king, uh, king of kings, then we aren't. If he's in control, then I'm not. And so part of what we're called to do as we seek the things that are above where Christ is, is to confess that he is Lord and we're not Lord. To begin to live again in our daily lives with that sense that he is on the throne, that he knows what he's up to. Uh, Ephesians, Paul prays this, prays that the Ephesians will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And he prays that they would know that God is working his great might and power through Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, 
but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is all. To begin to confess that he is Lord and we're not. Someone was talking to me recently, a friend of mine, and um, he has a rule of life. Are you familiar with that phrase, a rule of life? It's, 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 it's a rhythm to his life. It's actually a plan for how he tries to spend his day with the Lord Jesus. So he has this rule of life. He's actually written it down, what he tries to do. And he was telling me about it. And the first thing he does is every morning before he gets out of bed, he said, before my feet touch the floor in the morning. He says, I don't always succeed, but I try before my feet touch the floor, before I reach for my iPhone, I try to reframe my day. He said, I, 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 I say to the Lord, Jesus, you're on the throne. I'm not. Everything that happens today, Lord, has, has been filtered through your hands. I entrust this day to you. Whatever happens to me, whatever happens to my loved ones, I entrust it to you, Lord. It doesn't mean everything's going to go his way. But he begins his day with this frame of mind that Jesus is Lord of all, that he's King of kings. What would it look like if we started to practice that? Some of you probably already do. But what would it look like before I reach for my phone or reach for my cup of coffee to reach for the risen Jesus? And just say, Lord, you're Lord, I'm not. Help me to entrust this day to you. Another thing that it might mean here that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is that it means that Jesus remains fully human. And if Jesus is fully human, then he hasn't forgotten about us. This is, this is one that, that, that I kind of, as I was studying this this week, that it, it kind of hit me in a different way, that, that Jesus really kept his body you know, for all, all of eternity up until the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity didn't have a body. And then he took on a body in the incarnation. He suffered and died. He rose again with a resurrected body, and he ascended with that body, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, embodied. I mean, God really thought we were worth an investment. He took on a body and he's not going to get rid of it. He must like it. It must not be a burden to him, right? To be human, to be fully God and to be fully human. I kind of imagine a little bit, if you can kind of imagine the idea that God the Father is seated on a throne and Jesus is right there, that, you know, every once in a while, God the Father might look over and get startled. You have a body. Where did you get that? Oh, yeah. We sent you. Oh, yeah. Of course, it's not that God would forget about us, but it's, it's partly because Jesus is embodied in a human body and will be embodied for eternity that we know he has not forgotten about us. In one sense, it's all about us. And I know we get nervous about that because, oh no, it's all about God. But Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. He, he wants us to flourish. He, he, he loves us so much. He's so invested in humanity and in the human condition that he took on 
a human body? How can we set our minds on a risen, fully human and fully divine Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father? I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, you know, one of the things that might help us set our minds on that, Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. One of the things that might help me, I don't know if it'll help you, is to turn the news off. To turn the news off. There's a lot of stuff in the news recently. And whether your news feed is Twitter or the radio or uh, some news feed online, we can't let the daily news frame our human existence. If we do, we're in trouble. Because no offense to the news curators out there, those who curate the news, but you know what? They're not thinking about you when they do that. They're not thinking about what a good day or a good life looks like for you. And so while I'm certainly not suggesting, you know, that we stop paying attention to the news or coronavirus, for goodness sakes, politics, for goodness sakes. Yes, pay attention, but, but how much am I allowing the news cycle to frame my life when I have a Lord and Savior who cares more about the human condition than anyone else He's human. He hasn't forgotten about us. I was surprised, actually, as I was once again preparing for this, about how much I have talked about the coronavirus and read about the coronavirus, and it took me quite a long time before I ever said, oh, yeah, God, where, where, what are you doing about the coronavirus? It was kind of an afterthought. Third thing I'll mention and then we'll close. What does it mean that Jesus is seated? It means that Jesus is for us. And if Jesus is for us, then nothing can separate us from his love. Uh, Romans 8 puts it this way. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other, uh, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for us. You know, there's a very interesting little scene in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, not a bad name, by the way, Stephen is, uh, is being persecuted. He's about ready to be stoned in Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr. Remember what happens? The heavens open up, and, and Stephen says, I see Jesus. And, and he says, he's standing at the right hand of the Father. It's interesting. It's the only place in Scripture that doesn't say Jesus is seated at the right hand. And maybe, um, maybe when Jesus sees his children, going through with the kind of thing that Stephen was going through, he gets up 
Some suggest that Jesus might have been standing because he was going to get Stephen. Jesus is for us. Several years ago, um, I was sharing with one of my graduate theology classes at, at Talbot, where I teach, that a hymn that has been very important to me uh, and meaningful is the hymn, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. And I like that hymn, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, uh, flowing over me like, you know, a, a, I'm getting the words wrong, but you know the hymn, right? We could sing it. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, because it pictures God's love as if it's something we could swim in. And I need more of that vision of God's love in my life. So I told this class, I said, you know, one of these days, what I want to do is I want to go into my office at Biola, and I want to get some paint or something, and I want to write above the door frame, because uh, one of the lines says, oh, the deep, deep, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, the love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. I want to put, I want to write that above the door frame. Because I want, I want to remind myself, both consciously and, and unconsciously, that every time I, I walk through my door, I'm walking in and out of the deep, deep love of Jesus. And that group of students, my students don't always do these kind of things for me, but they actually made me a sign. And uh, I don't know if you can see it there. But they got someone to carve in a piece of wood, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And I put it above my office door. See, I want, I want that to frame my life. That the risen Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for us. He loves us. Every day we walk in and out of the deep, deep love of Jesus. It's part of my doorframe. It's part of what frames my life. What are the words of Jesus you need to write above your door? What are the words of Jesus that need to become your frame? Thanks for listening to the Grace Long Beach podcast. For more information about our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org.